Well, greetings to all of you on this last great day, this very special day that we celebrate at the very end of God's plan that he shows us in his holy days. One of the most challenging accusations that we face is, if God is real, if God exists, why does he allow such suffering as we see in the world today? We see children starving, women raped. We see the unspeakable horrors of wars where people are bludgeoned and hacked and blown apart. And oftentimes people die in those circumstances in great agony. They die in agony from cancer and other diseases. And why does God allow such suffering in our world today? How could a loving God allow these awful things to happen in the world if he does exist? And then there's the accusation, God is not fair. They look around the world and they see different peoples in different places. Some are living in wealth, some are living in poverty. Some have one form of religion, and when atheists or agnostics come and they look at Christianity, they say, well, you know, here you have an opportunity to hear the truth, or as you perceive it, the truth, but over there you can't hear the Bible. They aren't even allowed in some countries. And so is God really fair? Well, how we respond to these questions and accusations is very important. And there are solid answers to the questions that people pose. The problem is that those solid answers don't always come in a single sentence, and it takes a little bit of time to explain it. We also recognize that those questions come out of emotion. They're emotional questions, not necessarily questions of logic, even though they are posed as questions of logic. And we also know that we're dealing, in many cases, with the carnal mind. Actually, almost all cases, unless it's one of one of us just musing, trying to figure it all out. But most of the time, we're dealing with a carnal mind, one who is hostile to the law of God. And very often, people bring up these questions as excuses to disbelieve in God so that they can do what they want to do. This day... This day that we celebrate, this last great day, demonstrates God's love and His fairness. And so my purpose today is to give you the meaning of the last great day and to show how God is loving and fair. This is a separate feast from the previous seven, and it has a distinct meaning to it. It is not just an add-on one last day that we come and we you know, we have to have eight days, so uh, it's okay to come in the morning, but let's skip the afternoon and be on our way home. Uh, we're kind of getting tired. That's not the, the reason for this day. This day is a separate day, and it has rich, filled meaning. It's something that we look forward to, something that I look forward to, and I hope that you look forward to. We're going to have to wait a while before this day comes, but it is a day that is a, a day of... of happiness and joy because it shows us that God has a plan that he's working out and that he has a plan that it includes every single human being. The answer to the, the questions I gave take time to, to answer, but let's note that there are other questions that people have concerning God and his plan. 
What happens to small children who die early, maybe just a few days of age? What happens to them? And I know that as I'm talking to a large audience through this particular means, that there are people out there who have experienced the loss of a very young child. Uh, There are people who have lost uh, children maybe at 10 years of age or 12 years of age. But have they really had the opportunity to know God and to make the choice that, uh, that they need to make in life? What about people who live in other parts of the world where they've never heard the truth, where they've never heard the true gospel or even a false gospel? Think about that fellow in the Solomon Islands who died three days after Christ was resurrected. Did he have any chance whatsoever to hear the message of Christ? Well, we know that such such situations have existed all around the world where people have never known the truth. There are countries where... Even the Bible is banned, and they have no opportunity to know about it. What about those who uh, have grown up with a particular doctrine or form or understanding? Uh, Maybe they are Muslim. Maybe they are atheists in, in a home where everybody's an atheist. What about those people? Do they have the same chance as someone who grows up, for example, in the church of God, knowing the truth? I think that we all recognize that that's not the case. What about my Uncle George, my, uh, I try to make him famous, my atheist Uncle George, who was a very vile man in many respects, but he he came to believe that there was no God when his mother, uh, which is my grandmother, told him, look for the eggs that the rabbits laid, and he knew that they didn't lay eggs, and he began to question the whole thing of God as a result of that. What about uh, your Aunt Mary, maybe your uh, Methodist Aunt Mary? What about her? She doesn't believe the same way that we do in many different respects. But what about her? Is there a chance for her? And a big overriding question is, is Satan stronger than God? Because no matter what your definition of saved is, if you're really thinking about it, the vast majority of mankind is unsaved. The majority are not being saved by at least most people's reckoning. There may be a few that think that, well, everybody's just going to end up in in heaven. Of course, we know that's that's false. But nevertheless, uh, when you look at it, is is, uh, Satan stronger than God? Because it would seem that far more people are lost than are being saved, if you look at it that way. Jesus speaks of a coming resurrection and a time of judgment for the world. Let's notice over in Matthew, the 10th chapter, and we'll also see in the 11th and 12th chapters, that he brings uh, into the discussion the fact that there is a day of judgment coming. Let's notice that first of all in Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15. It says, Whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. He was sending his disciples out. And then in verse 15, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, that should cause us to stop and think. More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were cities that God destroyed for their gross perversions. And he rained fire down upon them. He destroyed those cities. And the only righteous that came out of it were Lot and his family. And sometimes you wonder about some of his family uh, when you look at what happened afterward. 
And he says to his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now let's notice chapter 11. And let's pick it up there in verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But the sense is that they didn't repent in sackcloth and ashes. They didn't come to the truth. But he said, if they had seen the miracles that Jesus performed among the the cities of uh, Chorazin and, and Bethsaida, that area where he spent so much time in his ministry, that they would have repented. In other words, if they were given the same or equal chance, they would have repented. But I say to you, verse 22, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Sometimes people refer to the general resurrection. Uh, There's a a sense that there's an understanding of uh, time coming later, but I think that most who think of that general resurrection know that it's, it's just a matter of how much you're going to be punished, not that you're going to have a fair chance. He says in verse 23, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades or the grave. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom... It would have remained until this day. But God didn't bring those works to Sodom. So what is he saying here? What is, uh, what is the message? Verse 24, But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Let's notice the 12th chapter. Three chapters in a row uh, really bring this out. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 41. This is right after the sign of Jonah. Verse 40, that is so prominent in our understanding. But verse 41, it says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment. There again, we hear three times about a time of judgment. With this generation, and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. He also says in verse 42, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment and with the generation, and condemn it. So when the queen of, of uh, the south rises up, uh, she's going to condemn the, uh, the generation that Jesus was dealing with, because had she known these things, then she would have repented, no doubt. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She had enough sense to, to come and hear Solomon, but she didn't understand the truth, of course. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So the greater than Solomon, of course, is, is Jesus himself. He said, one greater than Solomon, and yet you reject me. You don't listen to me. So we read here that there, there's a time of judgment coming. Now, the, the book of Colossians, the second chapter, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I have on many other occasions... And we, we do have a letter on the subject if anybody has questions or check with your minister if you're new and don't understand it. But in, in Colossians, the second chapter, there are a couple verses that are actually more than just a couple that are, that are greatly misunderstood. And yet when we truly understand them properly, they give us a hint, a clue. They give us really the, the key, you might say, to understanding these holy days. In verse 16, he tells the Gentile Colossians, 
He says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. In other words, don't let somebody tell you what you can eat, what you can drink, and all these different things, behaviors regarding uh, the, uh, uh, the Sabbath or the new moons or a festival, which are a shadow of things to come. They foreshadow future events. He says, but the body as it should be, even in the New King James mind, has a little one besides substance, and you go to the margin, it says literally body, and that's what it should be as it is in the Old King James, but the body of Christ. The word is is in italics, and uh, the, the point is that he's saying don't let someone come along, some outsider come along, one who is trying to teach you uh, ideas of uh, gnosis or knowledge, or the Gnostics, uh, kind of a pre-Gnostic idea that was going around, perhaps the Essenes who were a very strict sect of the Jews, uh, the ones that worshipped the basic principles or elemental spirits of the world. Uh, he says, don't let them come along and tell you what to do, what you, how you should eat, how you should drink, and so forth. Uh, are these things which are shadows of things to come, but the body of Christ. Let the body of Christ, and the body of Christ in chapter 1 and verse uh, 15, uh, or verse 18, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the body. The body of Christ is uh, or the church is the body of Christ, as it also tells us in the first chapter, verse 24, at the end, for the sake of his body, which is the church. So let the church teach us these things. This is where we learn where God is working as opposed to some outsider coming in and trying to destabilize the people. And then he goes on after that in verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. You see, this is the heresy that was being involved there where Christ was not sufficient to get us to God. He was just the last of emanation, as the word is often used, the last last one that comes down and that you have to go through all these angels to get to God. Uh, he says, in a false uh, worship, uh, false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, that is to Christ, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So, he talks about, uh, you know, if you're a dead, if you died with Christ from the basic principles or the elemental spirits of the world, why as a living in the world are you subject to these regulations that they were imposing? Don't touch, don't taste, don't eat, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, so he is talking about that. This is a passage that is so misunderstood. But the key here is that the Sabbath, the holy days, the festivals are a shadow of things to come. They foreshadow future events. We know that Passover, the ancient Passover, when they came out of Egypt, where they took the blood of a lamb and they put it on the door or above the door and the two side posts, was a type of the Passover lamb that was to come. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, the latter part, verse 7, it says, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And then it goes on in verse 8 to show that we are to put out the leaven. He says, therefore, let us put out the leaven. Uh, and, and he wants us to get rid of the, the, not just the physical leaven, but the leaven of malice and wickedness. So we see that the time that they came out of Egypt, that seven days, pictured our coming out of sin, our repentance from sin, putting the leaven, the puffed up things, out of our lives. 
and humbling ourselves. And then we see on the last day they walk through the Red Sea, which we read in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, was a type of baptism. The first uh, uh, two, three, four verses show us that they were all baptized into Moses uh, in the sea and in, under the cloud. So we see that these are foreshadowing future events. We see the Pentecost where the law was given in ancient Israel in the covenant. We see in the New Testament that God pours out His Holy Spirit to write the law in our hearts and in our minds. And so all these things foreshadow future events. And so this last great day is foreshadowing some future event. And what a wonderful event that is, as we shall see. Let's notice over in John, the seventh chapter, where Jesus gives us a hint as to the meaning of this day. As we may have read earlier during the the feast days, uh, Jesus went up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, Uh, not openly at first, but in the middle of the feast, he did show himself. And then we come to verse 37, where it says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, we're talking about this day today. The last great day. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Now, that was no doubt understood by the people that heard it uh, of his time, if they really got the message. But here he's saying, If anyone thirsts, and we read in other Scriptures, as we shall read in just a minute or two here, that not anyone could come to Christ that only those that God the Father drew to Christ. And so he's saying that there's a time coming, if he's talking about the meaning of the last great day, which we certainly believe that he is, that this is a hint of that, and that he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he he gives the message that if anyone wants to come to him, they can. And the only time that anybody, everybody, all people have the opportunity to come to him, as we shall see, is during this last great day. Uh, we'll, we'll notice that as we move forward. Romans, the ninth, 10th, and 11th chapters are uh, definitely involving uh, the meaning of this day. Uh, if I took time to go through them in detail, it, that would be the whole sermon. You can spend a whole sermon on, on one or two chapters, and we have three chapters here. But it begins in verse 1 of chapter 9, Romans 1, 9. I tell you the truth, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now, Paul, being a Benjamite, an Israelite, uh, uh, generally called a Jew by most people, but we, we understand that he was more of the house of Judah, but not technically uh, of the tribe of Judah. Uh, we, we know that, that Paul is saying, look, I, I, I love my countrymen. I, I love the Jews. I love uh, these people here. I wish that they could be saved now. He doesn't use that word now because as he goes through this, we shall see that he certainly means that. He he longed for them to be converted, for them to come to Christ. But then he begins talking about the differences between 
the Jews and the Israelites, and how it is not according to our will or according to our works, but it is according to God's selection or God's calling. And he shows that, even from the book of Genesis, that God called certain ones and rejected others at that time. He chose Jacob over Esau, as an example. And he says that uh, Pharaoh, he called Pharaoh for a particular cause and purpose. And then he says, is that unfair because I'm calling one person for this person, another person for another purpose at this time? Uh, he says in verse 21, Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So, as we see here, he, he contrasts those who are called, and he's showing that the Gentiles at that time were being called, and that the Jews were not in, a, in the, the big way. Now, we know that the church began among the Jews, but he is dealing with the Gentiles and showing that so many Gentiles were coming into the church, and how do we understand all these things between the Jews and the Gentiles? And he says, says it's by selection, by God's grace, not by what we do is, is our works in the sense that we can, we can determine that we want to be called right now, not that anybody would even hardly think of that, but it's not by our works, but by God's calling. He says in chapter 10, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And so he goes on, he, he discusses that some more. Then we come down to chapter 11, and we'll begin there in verse uh, 7. He says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. The rest were blinded. Now, Second Corinthians, the fourth chapter, verses 3 and 4, show that Satan has blinded people to the gospel of God. But here it says that there's a blindness that God is allowing, as it were, in a general sense for mankind. He says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. Verse 8, Romans 11, verse 8. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And then he quotes David uh, as well. Now, <clears throat> let's move down to verse uh, uh, 25. He says... <clears throat> Romans 11:25 For I do not desire brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery this mystery to the world certainly lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the times of the gentiles has come in so God is allowing this blindness to come to Israel not just the Jews but really to Israel in a broader sense uh, he's allowing Blindness to come upon Israel for a period of time, as it says there. And so all Israel will be saved. He says there is hope because all Israel will be saved in the end. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Notice it isn't just the Jews, but, but Jacob here is it saying. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. For you Gentiles he's talking to, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election or selection, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Yes, God hasn't cast them off. He called the, the Israelites early on, and he's allowing them to be blinded for a time, but he's still beloved by God, or they are beloved by God. For the gifts of the calling of God are irrevocable. God is not going to change his mind on this. For as you were once disobedient to God, you Gentiles were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, uh, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So God is working out a plan and a purpose. And we don't always understand uh, all the little ins and outs of his plan and purpose. But what we see here is that God is, is allowing blindness to happen to a certain group of people so that he'll work with others. But in the end, God wants all to be saved, as we shall see from the Scriptures. Let's look at this plan, and let's go back to the book of Genesis, and let's see uh, what happened at the very beginning. It, it is at the beginning that that we do need to start so that we can understand the, the scope and the, the, uh, the, the, the way that history goes down through time, what God's plan is from the beginning all the way to the end. And we have to start here at the beginning so that we can understand. We, we know that Adam and Eve uh, took of the wrong tree. They rejected the tree of life and took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They decided they wanted to determine what's right and what's wrong, as opposed to letting God tell them what is right and what's wrong. And so, down in verse 22, it says, Then the eternal God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil or to determine good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the eternal God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, uh, powerful spirit beings there, at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He cut mankind off from the tree of life. And when we read down through time, the, the Old Testament, we see that the majority of mankind has been cut off. We see that God had to actually destroy the whole world except for one man and his family and start over again because man had become so uh, degenerate, so evil, so violent. And when we look at our world, we see the same events today, the same uh, perversions that are taking place, the same violence that's all around us. Uh, we, we see the same conditions, and so God is going to have to deal with mankind once again. Now, sometimes people think that when Christ came, that he called everybody at that time. And yet, as you and I know, uh, that's not the case. It's good for us to be reminded of these things. Uh, we can read over there in uh, Matthew, the 13th chapter, uh, beginning in verse 10. This is after he has given the, the uh, parable of the sower. Uh, 
then he says here in verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? That was a very good question. Why did Jesus speak to the, the people in parables? They didn't understand this parable. The, the disciples didn't, as we shall see. So he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And then we read on down through here, in verse 18, he says, Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. And he describes or he explains the parable to his disciples at that time. And then in verse 34, it says, All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Let's notice Mark's account that uh, confirms this as well. In the book of Mark, uh, we see the parable of the sower uh, in the first part there. And then down in verse 10, it says, But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. Notice that they didn't understand this parable. And then we have Matthew's account where, he's, where they asked him, Well, why do you speak in parables? And then he says, verse 11, uh, To you it has been given to know the mysteries, the mystery of the kingdom of God. Notice one says kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, synonymous. It's, it's heaven's kingdom, God's kingdom. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. Those that are outside, all things come in parables. And then in verse 34 again, you have Matthew 10:34, and you have or, or 13, uh, was it Matthew... Um, so I always get it mixed up, but it's Matthew thirteen thirty four, and here we have in Mark ten thirty four we have the same statement. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So to the public, he spoke in parables. To his disciples, he explained what the parables meant. And that's so different from what most of the world thinks. They think that Jesus came and he called everybody and made the meaning clear to them. And yet we know that's not the case. Over in John, the sixth chapter, John 6 and verse 44. Very familiar scripture to us. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise them up at the last day. God has to select an individual if they're going to come to Jesus to really know his message. Now, God has selected you, and he selected me. And that is a precious gift that we should never take for granted, and that we've got to hang on to with everything that we have, because it can be taken away if we drift off in the wrong direction. So let us, you know, hang on to that. Let us be very careful. Let us not let someone take our crown. And let us not let the things that we know slip away from us. <clears throat> it is God's plan that all should be saved, however. Even though he didn't call everybody at that time, even though Jesus hid the meaning from people, we know from Second Peter, 
the third chapter and verse 9, that God has a plan and a purpose he's working out. And he says here, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's will. Now, do we really think that if God wanted to bring the world to repentance right now, that he's unable to do so? It's his will to do so. And so if he's not doing so right now, he must have a plan and a purpose that he's working out, either that or we'd have to assume that Satan is more powerful, and we know that's not the case. So God wants all to come to repentance. Notice also in 1 Timothy, the second chapter, 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And yet we know that all men haven't come to the knowledge of the truth. We know that all men are not saved at this particular time. So God has a plan. He has a purpose, and he's working it out, and this last great day explains it. We have the booklets, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan, that go through all of the holy days, showing what each one means, and showing that this day has a special meaning to it. Uh, And in addition to that, we have the booklet, Is This the Only Day of Salvation? Because many people think that you're either saved now, or you're lost forever right now. And when we look at little children that die, when we look at people who live in a different part of the world where they've not had the gospel preached to them, and when I say the gospel preached to them, I, I mean even a, a false gospel preached to them. They, they simply are unfamiliar with Christ and what he's done for us. And when we only look at it from our world today with mass communication, uh, e- even now uh, the whole world hasn't heard, but uh, when we think of this, during the first century and the second century, all down through time where we did not have mass communication or mass transportation as we have it today, it was impossible for much of the world to really know the plan and the purpose of God. And so there are those who say, well, God is is just going to judge them on what they know. But we know from John, the the fourth chapter, that uh, there's no other name under heaven, or is Acts the fourth chapter? Let me get that right. Right, Acts, the fourth chapter. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there's no other way than through the name of Jesus Christ that one can be saved. And some would say, well, if somebody wanted to know, that God would get the message to them. But we read in the tenth chapter of the book of Romans, In verse 13, it says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then it goes on to say, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? If they've not heard of Christ, how could they possibly want to learn about Christ? And how shall they hear without a preacher unless someone comes and brings the message to them? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, and it quotes here uh, from, uh, I believe it's Isaiah. 
Yeah, Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah 57. So we find here that, that God uh, has to bring the message to them. He has to draw us close to him. Otherwise, we're simply not going to understand. So what is, what is God doing here? Uh, there's a, a passage in 1 Corinthians that is relevant here that shows us that God has a time sequence for his plan. The 15th chapter, which is called the Resurrection chapter, one that we uh, no doubt very familiar with, we oftentimes read the end of the chapter, but the whole chapter is of great value. And so it says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Notice that even in Christ, all shall be made alive. It doesn't say only Christians or those who believe in him, but he says, even so, all shall be made made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Now, he, he breaks it off from there. He says, then comes the end when uh, he delivers the kingdom uh, to God the Father. But there, there's a lot in between there. He's not trying to give the whole plan here, but he's giving an overview. And he says here that uh, everyone's going to die. We all uh, have to face death. But God is going to resurrect people in a particular order. Those that are Christ at his coming. But what about the rest of the dead that we're not reading of here? In Second Corinthians, the sixth chapter... We have a passage that is greatly misunderstood. <clears throat> it, uh, it, it's used oftentimes to say that everybody is being called today. And, and that's just plain ridiculous if we look around the world. If, if we look outside of our little neighborhood where we are, and we look at the whole world in all parts of the world, and through all times, not just our time today, but down through time, uh, it's ridiculous to think that everyone is being called today. It says, We then, chapter 6 of Second Corinthians, verse 1, We then, as workers together with you, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now he's talking to the church at Corinth. And he says, Let us not receive the grace of God in vain. It's, it's a warning that we've, we've been given grace, but let it not be in vain. In other words, don't mess up what God has given to you. Don't, don't uh, go the wrong direction. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And then the verse says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, people take that out of context and say, Oh, now is the time of salvation right now for everybody. There are a few problems with that. First of all, it does not uh, even reach the, the logical sense that, that people are not given that same chance. Little children die early, people in other parts of the world and so forth. Uh, people that grow up as, as Muslim or some other Hindu or Buddhist or whatever, that's their, their frame of mind. And we can say, well, if they were really wanted to know God, they, they could. But let's face facts. We know that people generally follow uh, the, the path that their, their parents set for them. So some would have a greater opportunity than others. At the very least, God would be unfair. Now, <clears throat> in this particular passage, 
I, I went to the uh, the Greek English New Testament. It, it gives the the English or it gives the Greek first, and then it gives the English translation underneath it. And uh, I've also looked at a number of translations, and most of the translations or many of the translations say now is the accepted time, <clears throat> as it does here in the New King James. But in the original. And I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't uh, claim to, to know everything there. But let me just say this, that it's very clear that the Greek scholars accept the fact that this could be translated somewhat differently. And it says, in a time acceptable, I have heard you, and in a day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now a time acceptable. Notice, behold, now a time, not the time, but a time acceptable. Behold, now a day of salvation. Now that's that's what it says in, uh, you know, the, the Greek English New Testament that I have here. That's how it translates it. Instead of the, it says a. And the Old King James, if we go back to uh, the book of uh, Isaiah, from which this is quoted. Isaiah, you might hold your place here because I'm going to come back. Uh, the 49th chapter. It says in verse 8, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in as it should be a day of salvation. I think the old King James has a day of salvation. Uh, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. So the, the original in the King James has a day. It doesn't say the day. Now, let's just take a, a bigger uh, view of this particular passage. Paul is talking to the church of God at Corinth. And he is saying to them, don't allow, uh, I, I plead with you, that you do not receive the grace of God in vain. So it is clear that he's talking to a group had received God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's gift of His truth. And He's telling them not to receive it in vain. And then He quotes this Old Testament verse that, as we've seen here uh, from the, uh, uh, the, the Greek English New Testament, that even in the New Testament it should properly be translated uh, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And He says, Behold, now. Uh, a time, it leaves out the, the the verb, but it says, now a time acceptable, behold, now a day of salvation. But even if we take it to say, now in is the day of salvation, who is he talking to? He's talking to the church. And in the same way, we have said many times in the ministry, that now is our time of salvation. It's not for the world, but it is our time. And so even if we look at it in the total context, he is saying that, yes, now is, is a day of salvation or the day of salvation when it comes to you. That's the sense of it. Now is your opportunity. That, that, that's the intent of what he's saying. So don't receive the grace of God in vain, because your time is right now. Now let's go over to 1 Peter 4, and let's notice another passage that is sometimes... I think even in the church we've we've misunderstood this or misapplied it. Uh, we we understand the 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 basis of it, and sometimes when we quote things often, as I bring out my booklet on John three sixteen, where you memorize a verse and then you think you know everything about it, 
And so you read it casually, uh, carelessly, without really looking into it to see what the, the total meaning of it is. And so in, in 1 Peter 4.17, it says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, we, we focus on the first part of that, that time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. So he's saying here that judgment is on the house of God, the people of God. And we recognize that that's talking to us. The judgment is on the house of God. But then, as kind of an afterthought, we then read what it says, what will be the end? And if it begins with us first, notice us first, showing that judgment is going to come to others later on. He says, but if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I think subconsciously, many of us have in the past read this to mean, well, what about those outsiders out there who are disobedient to God? What happens to them? But let's go back and let's pick up the context of who he is addressing when he says, uh, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Is that talking about the rest of the world? Or is that addressed to the people of God who are under judgment at this time? Let's go back to verse 12. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Yes, there are sufferings in this world. And there's a purpose for suffering. And when we suffer, it helps us to kind of boil everything down to what's really important. And there are great lessons from it. And he wants us to learn lessons from it. He allowed his son to suffer on this earth. And he learned by the things he suffered, as we're told. He says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So if we are reproached for the name of Christ, if people persecute us because of what we, we believe and what we teach, he said, that, that's fine. On, on your part, uh, you know, God loves you. Uh, on their part, uh, you know, you're going to be blasphemed. Uh, but on your part, he is glorified. God is glorified. But notice verse 15, but let none of you, he's talking to the church. He says, let none of you suffer as murder, a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody and other people's matters. In other words, if we're going to suffer, let us suffer for the right reason. If we are suffering uh, because someone is reproaching us, or if we're suffering because of our, our you know, uh, our health or whatever it might be, different reasons for it, that's one thing. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, if you're suffering for the right reasons, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the fact that people are persecuting us and talking evil of us. But let, let him glory in this matter, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. 
And if it begins with us, with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So who are the those that he's talking about here? He's telling us that let us not suffer for the wrong reasons. What's going to be the end of murders and adulterers and the, the others, the, the thief, the evil uh, evildoer, the busybody, and other men's uh, practices? So he's not talking about the world here. Uh, it, it's, it's read that way in almost all the commentaries because they think that we are this, we, uh, speaking of them, Christians, and everybody else is going to really get it uh, in the end. And then in verse 18, he goes on to say, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? The, the sinner out in the world? Or is he talking about in the church when he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, etc.? So I think it's, it's a subtle difference, but it's a very important difference that we should come to understand. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Now, let's go to um, look at what this day is, is really, how it's described in Scripture. Let's go, first of all, to Revelation, the 20th chapter. We, we see at the beginning of the chapter the Feast of Atonement, or the Fast of Atonement in reality. Uh, we see where Satan is removed. Even the previous chapter, Christ uh, descending and, and so forth and fighting against his enemies. And then we have uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to, to 3, uh, where he shows how Satan is going to be removed. We know that is, is, picturing, is pictured by the Day of Atonement. And then verse 4 of Revelation 20, he speaks of thrones and they who sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And they, they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. Well, that's the seven days that just passed, the, the uh, millennial reign of Christ, the time that we pictured during the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So, he's saying that at Christ's return, there will be those who are Christ at His coming. They will be resurrected and help bring about this millennial reign, working with Jesus to bring about peace upon this earth. But he says, now the rest of the dead, so the rest of the dead are those who were not Christ at His coming. They're the, the thousands, the millions, the billions of people who have lived down through time and were not Christ for whatever reason, or whether they rejected Him or whether they just never heard of Him. Uh, they are, those are the ones that will come up at that time. He says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, indicating that there is going to be another resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. That first resurrection is a better resurrection because it is a resurrection of spirit life. That's the, the, the main part of this. There may be other aspects of it, but uh, that first resurrection is to resurrection to life, whereas the second resurrection, as we're going to read, uh, brings us back to physical life, but not to eternal life. He says, over such, the second death has no power. But those that come up later 
the second death still does have power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. Notice not the last hundred years of uh, the millennium, but after the thousand years when it has expired, Satan's released from his prison. He goes out and deceives the nations that are on the earth. And then they, they fight against uh, Christ again. Uh, the devil who deceived them, verse 10, was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great. Now we're talking about another resurrection. Not the first resurrection, but a second resurrection. And he sees the dead, small and great. The little people of this earth. Those that have been neglected. The, the slaves, the serfs, the, the poor of the world. As well as the great names that we would recognize. At least today we would. Uh, and names that would have been recognizable back in the time when people lived a hundred thousand years ago or whatever it might be. The small and the great. Standing before God. And books were opened. So these are the books of the Bibles we know because they were cut off from understanding the truth. The books were open. And these books, these letters that are put together in one giant book, the, the, the Bible as we call it, uh, were opened up to them so that they could understand them. And how many people have picked up our literature, picked up the Bible, read it, and it just doesn't make any sense to them? It's not because they're stupid. They just don't get it. Their mind hasn't been opened. God the Father has not drawn them to Christ, as it says there in, first, in uh, John, the fourth chapter. I'm sorry, John 6, 44 and 65. God hasn't called them. He hasn't turned that screw. He hasn't taken his spirit and worked with that person's mind to where that individual can understand it. They just didn't get it. And so these books now for the first time are opened up to where they can understand the message of God. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, we know the book of life is a book that we have to have our names written in if we're going to have eternal life. And it's not pictured as a closed book. It's a book that's open where names can be written in it. It's not necessarily a book as we understand books as we have them today. It might be a scroll. It might be a, a you know, a something electronic, so to speak. Uh, however, God keeps track of that. He's, basically, it's symbolic of the fact that the opportunity for individuals to have their name written there so that they can have life is going to be there. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing that the, the time of salvation is not closed, but it is open. And it says, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Notice it says that were written in the books. That's going back to uh, standing before God. The books were opened. In other words, the books of the Bible, they're judged by this. And uh, people read into it to mean that, well, all their sins are written down. And they're, well, if well, you know that they're not saved because if they were saved, they'd have been resurrected a thousand years earlier. So we don't have to know that these people uh, at this point are not saved but they're going to be judged. They're going to have their time of judgment. 
just as we have our time of judgment right now. They're going to have their time of judgment. And then it goes on to say that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and uh, Hades or the grave delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. So there are works which will be there at that time. Let's notice over in Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I think it's one of the favorites of many of us. It's a a beautiful thing. I I saw just recently a a YouTube video that was portraying the rising up of the nation of Israel from dead bones. In other words, you had the Holocaust and it showed all these pictures of these bones there, and then the miracle of Israel rising up, the little nation of Israel. And that's how they interpreted this particular passage of Scripture. But when we read it carefully, it doesn't fit. The nation of Israel today does not know God. Uh, they are, they're mostly secular, or many of them are secular. Then there you have the ultra-Orthodox, and they don't get it. They were just like the Jews of Jesus' day, straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Uh, this is talking about something yet in the future. In chapter 37, verse 1 of Ezekiel, Then the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones." Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. They were very dry because they had been dead for a long time, a newly, a a bone that that comes immediately from any kind of uh, animal life, has moisture in it. it. It's alive, a living thing. But a bone that is dry has been dried up and and died for a long period of time. And so he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? So I answered, O my Lord, or O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, verse 4, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Eternal. Thus says the Lord God, or the Eternal God, actually the Lord Eternal, to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. He's going to allow these people to come back to life. Breath, that's physical, that's air. I will put sinews, connecting tissues, ligaments, tendons on you, and bring flesh upon you, and muscle tissue, in other words, and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Notice, then you shall know that I am the Eternal. Now, has that taken place in Israel today? They might have come up out of the ruins of Second World War, but do they know God? I think that we all know the answer to that, no. This secular state that is calling itself Israel uh, doesn't know the truth. He goes on to say, uh, then you shall know that I am the Eternal. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, 
that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Not just the Jews, not just the Benjamites, these are the whole house of Israel. He says, They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. I know when my uncle George, as an atheist, went to his grave, he thought that was the end of it. Uh, whatever point he, he had uh, his still conscious, he was thinking that was the end of it. Just like these people, they think when they go to the grave, that's it. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, on my, on my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then... At that time, then you shall know that I am the Eternal when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my Spirit in you. We don't see that today. This is something yet future. I will put my Spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord, or the Eternal. And then he goes on, and, and what follows to say there, there's two sticks, one for Judah, one for Israel. And bring them together and they'll be one nation. This is something that has not happened in the little nation of Israel. It's showing that the house of Israel is still in existence with the house of Judah at the very end. And then the twelve apostles are going to be ruling over each of the twelve tribes. So, uh, this is not just talking about the Jews, it's talking about a far greater event. This is that great white throne judgment when these people come up and they will be given their opportunity to know the truth. What a glorious day that's going to be. We believe that that day will probably be, or that time will be a hundred years based on Isaiah 65, uh, verses 17 to 20. Uh, that seems to be the only place this, this fits in where a little baby, an infant, is not going to die just a few days old, but will be given a hundred years and so forth. So we believe that's, that's the case. In Romans, the 11th chapter, Romans 11, in describing God's plan and how uh, He's going to save all Israel eventually, uh, maybe not every last individual because there will be those who reject Him, but the majority, no doubt. He says in verse 33, uh, Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? Yes, God has an amazing, wonderful plan. God thinks big. The universe, look at how big it is. And he is looking at bringing literally billions of sons and daughters into his family. At the white throne judgment, first Israel, but he will also bring up the Gentiles as well. It is his purpose and his will that all men come to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. This demonstrates that God is fair, that he has a plan and a purpose that will include every individual. It also demonstrates his great love for every single human being. 
both great and small. And how thankful we should be for that. Because there aren't too many great among us. Uh, Most of us are just ordinary and small. But God has called us now, and He's going to call all people that have ever lived to give them their chance. May we rejoice and be buoyed by the hope that God has given to us through this special, wonderful day. The last great day, the white throne judgment.